want to meet you in the 14th chapter of the book of Luke. Let's go to the Gospels this evening and let's focus with Jesus on a, on a story that Jesus tells. I want to set the stage for this by, uh, I don't always put titles. I always put a title on our message when we post it because they're easy to find. You know, you, just, you don't just put up your name and the date. It's easier to give a, people a title of a sermon. So as I edit them and go back through them, usually a title falls out. Um, but this one, I would, I would borrow a phrase uh, that I read by a, a great, what I think was a, a great uh, Christian scholar, uh, Robert Farrar Capon. He wrote that uh, God had a monomaniacal commitment to grace. That's a phrase I thought was pretty deep. But uh, the, what I would title this is the crazy initiative of grace. And I want to try to preach towards that idea tonight, all right? Walk you up to that idea. That idea that there is a, that God has an initiative that is grace, that He is going to pull off no matter what we do about it, no matter how much we get in the way, no matter how badly it bothers us, God is going to function through grace. He is not going to decide to do it another way. And honestly, it's the last way we would choose is the way of grace. And that's why I agree with his phrase. It is a crazy initiative. It is crazy to try to force grace on people in a world obsessed with meritocracy. We build almost all of our structures out of only the strong survive. Do better and you'll make more. Work harder and you'll climb higher. And I'm not here to bemoan that structure, although that structure has its own built-in problems, and we know it. It tends to crush people that don't climb well. It tends to leave people behind that don't move fast enough. It tends to um, tilt away from you if you're not quick on your feet or clever with a dollar or uh, able to get more done on shorter amounts of sleep or maybe just a little bit smarter. That system really doesn't have a lot of room for you. Now, again, neither here nor there on what we do with those systems. We, uh, they work. We like them. We especially like them when they matter to us. Like we're all about equitable systems when it comes to kids playing soccer. Everybody plays, they get a cupcake meritocracy doesn't matter. You don't have to score to get a cupcake. You showed up at the game, you get a cupcake. Equal for all. It's a good way to live. We don't want a heart surgeon that was chosen in an equitable system. We want a heart surgeon that was chosen in a meritocracy. meritocracy. Because we don't want one that was chosen because they were the right height, they went to the right school, they're the right gender, they're the right skin color. We want the one that's the best. And it's okay for everybody else to have the equitable system, but when it comes time for me, I'm going to go find the guy that's better than the other guy, right? So, so those systems have their value, is my point, in, in the way that we use them. Um, yes, they tilt sometimes towards, uh, especially at the top, towards tyranny, uh, and, and that must always be kept in check, um, it's also why I went through that whole spiel because I want to show you how opposite grace is because grace is the free favor of God where God doesn't put a bill of sale in front of you 
and say, you owe me because I died on the cross for you and you're coming up short this week and I'm not going to bless you and I'm not going to anoint you and I'm not going to forgive you and I'm not going to favor you. We are not in a spiritual meritocracy where only the strong get to go to heaven. Only the, the, the truly moral or good get to spend time with Jesus someday. Aren't you glad that meritocracy doesn't exist in glory? Instead, that God's grace, which is crazy considering that it works so well the other way to promote the best of the best, and then you have the way of grace, which promotes sometimes the worst of the worst. And why would God double down on this system of government? And he did. It was at the cross Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. God doubles down on grace and says, grace is going to be the way we're going to go. You're going to, I'm going to forgive you. I actually love this next statement, but I want to pause before I say it because I want you to prepare yourself because sometimes it goes down sideways. God says, I'm going to forgive you whether you like it or not. Amen. That's God doubling down on grace and going, I'm going to do it my way. You're going to disagree at times because of who gets in and who gets what and who qualifies. But I'm going to do it anyway because this is my party. I set the rules and I'm going to stick with it. And I'm not going to compromise that because it's easier or it makes more sense to. Now, what I've just said to you is pretty much a universal agreement in this room. We're excited about that. We love it. It's part of the reason you're here. It's because you want to come and hear about that kind of Jesus and that kind of grace. But when we go into the stories of the scriptures, I want you to realize that that's not the room that Jesus is setting in all the time. That's not the environment that Jesus has walked into. It's not an environment of looking for God's grace. I also want to take you into their context tonight to show you that sometimes if we take you out of this room, and I mean if I literally take you out of this room, in Chapin on a Friday night and drop you in any other situation. It's not as easy to say amen to grace. It's easy to say amen to grace in the environment. Paul's up there and he's just going on about Jesus and he's dropping in verses and he's saying these little quips and he set us up and he warned us and he's, a, and he's doing all of this stuff and then, oh yeah, grace, that's what I want. That's why I came. Take you up out of this room away from Friday and drop you into the middle of whatever. Insert here some other situation and then grace isn't as easy to amen it isn't as easy to find and you might find that sometimes it's the last thing you want god to do in the middle of your situation and that is why we have the preachers and the teachers and why we investigate the word is so that we can move ourselves out of the environment of the church and put ourselves smack dab in the middle of the real world environment. I want to drop you in a real world environment tonight with the Lord Jesus. From Luke chapter 14. And I want to begin reading in verse 12 for what will be the beginning of our message. But not the beginning of the story Jesus is going to tell. This is the setup. This is the lobby to the room okay, that we're getting into. Jesus is at a dinner party. And in Luke chapter 14, verse 12, he says to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. 
But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, with no other context and not, not really introducing much else other than just the intro I gave you, let's just imagine for a moment that we're sitting at this dinner with Jesus. And I want you to imagine, if you would, how many people in the room do you think are poor, crippled, lame, or blind? I think the fact that Jesus said this indicates that the total number of poor, crippled, lame, and blind are precisely zero. Otherwise, bringing this up at this dinner party is just superfluous. But because he brings it up, it gives me a really good idea that he's sitting in a really comfortable room in Chapin on a Friday night. You know, he's in an envi- I mean, he's in an environment where he's relaxed, where there's not the stresses of the outside, where he's sort of in that place. And Jesus turns to his host and says, what about a world outside of our room? What about a world that has the poor in it and the lame in it and the crippled in it and the blind in it? And he looks around and he goes, and, and, and I, I know now we're putting a little bit into his mouth, but if you'll go with me for a moment, I don't think it's a far stretch because most of you nodded your head in agreement that the number was probably precisely zero. It's why he brought it up. So if it were zero, maybe his conversation sounds something like this. Are there no poor in our town that we could have found one to feed? Do we not know a crippled person? Or maybe we just haven't encountered a blind man or a lame man. And everyone knows better because they've walked past them on their way to get to the dinner. And they they moved past them in the marketplace and during the day. And Jesus then by saying it is pointing out the absence of the people for whom banquets would mean the most. The absence of the people for whom the food on the table would mean the most. And I don't think this was a real popular moment for Jesus. I can't imagine that the host of the party went, yes, you are right. That is exactly what we should do at our dinner party. I imagine that the host was rather embarrassed. I imagine that the people that threw the party were a little frustrated. Why? And maybe this is one of those moments. You know, Judas does end up selling Jesus down the river for 30 pieces of silver. And I don't think Judas thought he was going to the cross. I think he was getting Jesus to finally sit down with the right guys. This is one of those moments that I kind of think Judas in the back of the room went, Oh, gosh. Why does he do this? We got invited into this party. Everything's good. The food's great. It's nice and comfy. He's got to come in here and throw this grenade in the middle of the living room right at the end of the dinner party and act like we're all so unappreciative of all this good that's going on. Why does he keep acting like this? Why can't Jesus just leave well enough alone? I can't tell you how many times I read the Gospels and ask that same question. It's like Jesus is in an environment. You go, why can't he just leave well enough alone? It's way more socially acceptable here to just zip your lip. You know, mom said, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And yet here's Jesus running right into the middle of the room going, hey, I got a story for you. And you get done and go, nobody wanted that story, Jesus. That's not the story you tell. But what fascinates me is the response. Because... We didn't read the response. We just read what Jesus said. But let me read for you the response. It's the next verse from verse 15. And one of the dinner guests, upon hearing this, said to him, Blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, just let that marinate for a second. 
Blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And is he right? It's a good call. Absolutely. Blessed is anyone that will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But what does throwing anyone into the conversation do to the poor and the lame and the blind? Jesus has emphasized that the dinner banquet belongs to the people who don't have anything else, that are broken and hurting, who've been marginalized and left out. And those in the party hear Jesus do that. And rather than acknowledging that those lives matter, they throw in all lives matter into the mix. Did you catch it? So rather than letting them be poor and lame and blind, and yes, we need to do something about it, they elevated themselves into the exact same position as the poor, the lame, because they got just a touch offended that Jesus looked past the the participants of the dinner out to people who weren't there. And what bothered them is that he would look past all of us. And so their response is, hey, actually, Jesus, all of us are blessed. Poor, blind, lame, not poor, not blind, not lame, doesn't matter who we are. All of us are blessed to eat in the kingdom of God. So, lazy answer. They didn't wrestle with the poor or the blind or the lame. They just threw themselves into the kingdom with them. Which, on the surface, you go, yeah, we're all in that kingdom. But they also emphasized only... The latter half of Jesus' comment. I'll just reread for you the latter half. You, you will be blessed because they can't repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And so Jesus gives one sliver at the end of his speech on what happens at the end of the age. He goes, at the very end of all this, there's a resurrection of the righteous. Good things are going to happen. And the only thing that the response of the crowd is, is on that last part... Because Jesus hasn't said anything to them about the kingdom, but they took the resurrection to be equal to the kingdom. And so when they hear a story about the resurrection, they go, yes, in the kingdom we all get to eat. So not only do they include themselves with the poor and the blind and the lame, but they run all the way to the end of the age because if you can run to the end of the age, you don't have to deal with this age. One of our church obsessions with eschatology is because if we can master what happens at the end of the world, we aren't really that responsible for what's going on in our world. And so some of our obsessions with what happens at the end is so that we don't pay attention to what happens today. Because what happens today is hard to swallow. But if I can get my rind around what happens at the end, I can convince myself that we're heading towards the end and then the end is all that really matters. But we know better in our hearts because Jesus says if you host a dinner, invite the currently poor and the the lame and the blind and those on the outside. Do that now. That's who they currently are. At the end of the age, we all get our reward. And when we respond, all we look at is at the story of the end of the age. And that's why I tell you it's a lazy response because they try to throw themselves in with the poor and the blind and they run to the end of the story. And I am so afraid of how many times I've ran to the end of the story to try and figure out how everything ends so that I didn't have to deal with the blind I run to the end of the story to try to figure out how this ends so I don't have to deal with the poor because if I could just master this whole end of time thing 
then I don't know if I'd have to deal with the lame or the outsider or the marginalized or the minority. They're out there. But won't it be wonderful there? Having no burdens to bear. We can just look past all of the people and just look towards heaven when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. And if I'm just focused on what I'm going to rejoice in over there, then the blind and the lame and the poor aren't as big a deal because when we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. And that's just good old-fashioned gospel, right? And Jesus will not let it rest. So how many of you realize you know it's coming Jesus is going to drop another bomb in the room because he's going to tell a darn story. It's just the way he does. You set him up. You don't like what's happening. You, you, you try to throw your own little two cents in. Jesus is going to come right back with a story. You know that he will. We call them parables. It kind of keeps them clean and neat and kitty. You know, they're little stories, but they're bombs when Jesus drops them. They're full of material. They're, they're so rich, we're still uncovering them. 2,000 years later, we're working on these parables. Now, granted, before I read it, we do have a, we do have a tendency to exhaust them until they break. Uh, one of the things we love to do with parables is assign everybody a role in the parable. You know, everybody stands for something else. It's like a, fam- a Bible professor got up in his seminary class and taught the Good Samaritan. And he said, the, the good Samaritan is Jesus. And you and I are the, the poor by the side of the road. And, uh, and, and then he identified the priests and he identified the Levite. And he said, then he puts him on the donkey and he rides him to the inn. And the church is the inn. And the bread and the wine are the sacraments of baptism and the body and the blood. And, and then he just everything got a, an assignment. And it was this rich tapestry. Young student in the back raised their hand and goes, oh, you forgot to tell us what's the donkey stand for? And the professor goes, well, that's the jackass that told you what all of this means. He goes, that's me. (laughs) The truth is, sometimes when you just keep assigning and assigning and assigning, what you do is you end up just realizing, okay, I think maybe I'm just being an idiot. This can't mean what Jesus was trying for it to mean. And because a lot of times we end up with it not meaning what Jesus had for it to mean so let's try not to bend this till it breaks all right we're not going to do assignments of every person in the parable let's just let it rest in the room the way jesus told it and see how it lands because we've already set you up with the room we've already set you up with the lazy response so what might jesus do then luke chapter 14 verse 16 then jesus said to him someone gave a great dinner and invited many At the time for the dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a piece of land and I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to go try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I've just been married and therefore I cannot come. So the slave returned and reported this to his master. And then the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that Jesus has just repeated who wasn't at the party he's at. 
right? He drops it into the parable. This should be your cue that something is happening in this story that looks like the room Jesus is sitting in. And the slave said, sir, what you have done, what you have ordered has been done and there is still room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the roads and the lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. All right, I want to work with this for just a little bit. Again, careful not to just try and insert into every area of the story some sort of interpretation because, you know, we don't really need it. It it weighs pretty heavy as you read it that Jesus tells the story of a man who throws a dinner and all of the people that he invites are just too busy to come. And what might get missed in this that I think is very much worth bringing out is that none of the excuses Jesus gives are silly. None of the excuses Jesus gives are ridiculous. I mean, had he had the people saying stuff like, oh, I can't come, I got to wash my hair. We would elbow each other and go, ha, ha, ha. They just didn't want to go to the party. Oh, I can't come, I bought some new shoes. I got to go walk around in them for a little while, see if they work. They go, he's just trying to throw them off. He doesn't. He picks very legitimate reasons to not go to a party. You bought a house. You just closed on it. You get invited, it goes, wait, odds are, probably got to go see that house. Probably got to start moving stuff in. You've already rented the U-Haul, right? So you go, can't make it to the party. Jesus goes, here's, here's an example. Someone had already bought a house. They couldn't make it to the party. Second guy bought five yoke of oxen. That's kind of like buying a new car in our culture. So you go, just got a new car. Got to go pick it up. Got to sign all the paperwork. Got to lock this thing down. We would accept that excuse. The third one's the best one of all. I just got married. I'm going on my honeymoon. Okay, hey, we don't expect you to break your honeymoon. Come to our silly little dinner party. I get it. My point is, is that Jesus uses legit excuses in all three of them. He doesn't make up silly stuff. So he's not out here saying, you know what your problem is? Is you don't take this serious enough. You didn't really want to eat at my supper. No. What are all these people doing? It's really simple. They're all just living their lives. They're just doing their thing, man. They're just going about... They're actually doing stuff you got to do, like take care of your house and your car and maybe your spouse and maybe your kids and maybe your, your stuff. You got to do the stuff that's got to be done. And Jesus picks three examples. He could have picked a thousand. He picks three very simple examples that everybody in the room would have understood and that everybody in the room would have respected, which tells me that Jesus is trying to tell a story that encompasses the whole wide world. Because when God turns towards us, he turns towards us in the middle of our living in the middle of us doing what it is that we do. And that's how God found you, living, doing what it is that you do. Smack dab in the middle of doing what it is that you do. Because that's who gets invited to the dinner. People who are living. Living and living it up. That's how we received our initial invitation to the dinner. But in this particular story, that group is living to the point that they don't have time to go to the dinner. So the master of the house gets angry. And his anger is not then to go chase down all these new home buying, new car driving, honeymooning people and slit their throats in some act of cosmic vengeance in which God's going to get you to do it his way. He doesn't do that. His anger, I think this is a fascinating moment, his anger is to turn his message and say, then go get the poor and the blind and the lame 
and bring them into the party because nobody ever invites them to parties. But I'm going to invite them to a party. I'm going to turn my wrath towards taking in that which is at the bottom of the meritocracy ladder. I'm going to turn to those who are getting stepped on and crushed and left behind and ran over and forgotten. And my wrath is going to be to sweep up, not so that I can destroy them, but to sweep them up into the arms of my house and bring them in. So you guys get out there and do that. And so the servants go out into the streets and they clean in the streets of the homeless. There are no more homeless on the streets. There's no one left in the gutter. They clean out the emergency room wards. They clean out the homes of the hospice. They clean out the homes of those unfortunate, the, the poor. They go to the worst ends of town. They bring them in in buses. I know I'm being melodramatic. There are no buses, in case you didn't know that. This is the first century. But you can go with me with the story, please. And so they're bringing them in. And the servant comes to the master and says, we still have room. And you know why we still have room? Because Jesus told his disciples, in my father's house are many mansions. In other words, in my father's house is a lot of room. There's not, my dad doesn't run out of room. If he needs another room, we just put another room in the house. Dad's going to find room for who he needs to find room. And the servant says, we've done all we can do. We cleaned out the homeless. We cleaned out the ghetto. There's no one left in the hospitals. They're all down there eating and having a good time. And we still have room at the table. What do you want us to do now? And the master says, I want you to go out into the roads and the lanes. What the old King James says, I want you to go out into the highways and the hedges or the highways and the byways. I always kind of like highways and byways. There's the highway and then there's the byway. It's over here. Whatever road you go down, go find people and bring them in. And notice that the qualifications are all they have to do is actually be out there on the highway and the byway. He just put the net out wider. So now it's not just the poor and the blind and the lame and the crippled. Now it's anybody breathing. <laughs> anybody breathing that you can find that's moving, bring them in. If we're really honest here, we get confronted with something that gets a little uneasy for us. It got a little uneasy for the people at the dinner. It was uneasy enough when Jesus said, hey, look around, where's all the poor people and the lame people and blind people at this dinner party? That was uneasy enough. What really gets uneasy is when he goes, what if we were to clean out the world? There's no one left. We brought them all in. What's uneasy about that is that we know what those people are like. We know how they think. We know what they do when the lights are off. We know what they're like behind closed doors. We know how they talk. We know how they live. Are you sure that you want them at the party. I mean, if we go out into the highways and the but there's no poor left, there's no blind left, there's no lame left, and there's no cripple left. What's left? Maybe a bunch of God haters. Maybe a bunch of people who would rather not be at the they'd rather firebomb the party then come to the party. Maybe that's all that's left out there. Maybe the only ones left really just truly don't want to be at parties. Those are the ones you want me to go get. And the story limps across the finish line for us because it can't be where Jesus wants us to land with the gospel is to throw 
this kind of a party. But then, in classic Jesus fashion, he won't just be quiet. He won't just stop talking. He has to throw in that one more zinger, that one more thing that even though we're only limping across the line, is going to make it even harder. And he says in 24, For I tell you, none of those who were invited will actually get to taste of it. Which gives us the biggest curveball of all. So how do we get into the kingdom? I mean, it's not invitation only. Because he just said it's not invitation only. It's not only not invitation only, the invited people don't even get to go. So what do we do with this? I mean, are we to assume that in the end... And so here's part of what we've done with it. We've made it a Jew-Gentile thing. We did that so we could kind of figure out where to land on this. What we did with this story is went, well, Israel had been invited to the party in covenant with God and they rejected it. So God went out and got all the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. And then he went and got all of us. See, we, we, you know, how we love it if we get to be the, uh, the third ring. If we get to be the third ring, then this is a good story. Because that means, oh, apostate Israel missed out on the party. God's not going to invite them in in the end anyway. The only way you're going to get in is to be like us. Because Notice whenever we need it, it feels good to be that third ring. When we need it, it feels good to be the people in desperate need of grace. And so when we need that desperate need of grace, we pull in, we receive that, des- we receive that grace. So I think you probably know that's not where I'm going to land on this, is to say that God's saying to national Israel, you're the one. No, that's not where I'm going to land at all. And, and here's why, because I think all that that does at the end of the day is develop in some ways the grossest form, as if there's a good form, but maybe the grossest form of anti-Semitism. And, that, and what I mean by the grossest form is the kind that exists under the guise of Christianity. That's the grossest form of anything, by the way, is when you attach Christ to something that excludes people. It's the grossest form of excluding. It's to put Jesus on the front of it and go, that's what Christians, that's what we stand for. And you go, I don't, man, we really ought to reconsider that which slammed the door with Jesus on the front of it. So you work through that. Okay. So let's don't land there because we can do better. And I'll tell you why we can do better because Jesus isn't finished. You probably assume that as much because your chapter keeps going and Jesus keeps talking. And so there are other things that Jesus keeps saying. And when we land at the end, we find that Jesus gives us an explanation that works because it scares us. <laughs> Let me say that again, or maybe say it better. I know that sometimes we think, well, if Jesus says it, it's never going to bother us. Oh, contrary. If Jesus says it, it will often bother us because it's the truth that is sharper than a two-edged sword that's coming out of his mouth, and that divides parts of our life. And so before we land there, I just want to make sure that we are in the same boat we're all on the same water we might as well and we're in the same room we might as well be in the same boat all right and being in that same boat we're sitting at that dinner we've just had a wonderful evening of conversation with jesus he's a rather delightful fellow his disciples are nice guys he tells funny stories he's healed a few people it's been spectacular and then at the end of the party he drops this little bomb on us that maybe our party wasn't as good as it could have been because we didn't bring enough of the trashiest kinds of people into it. Yeah, I'm not real happy with this. Elbowed my neighbor, said he could have left that out. The night was going well until he said that. I could have done without that. But you know, hey, in the end, 
we all actually get to get in the kingdom. Everybody that gets to go is blessed regardless of who they are. You know, that's, that's kind of my response to Jesus. We're, that's us. In the end, we all get to go. In the end, whoever gets there, that's the ones that are blessed. And then, lo and behold, Jesus just won't leave it alone. And here comes this bizarre story about a master who invites us to the party. But we got too much stuff going on. And then he invites the poor, and that's not enough. So he invites the dregs, the true outsiders. I think by the time he gets to this part in the story, the room's dead quiet. I don't think there's anybody talking. I don't think there's anybody elbowing. I don't think there's anybody laughing. I think there's a little bit of disturbance. It's unease in the room. Especially when he drops that chestnut in that no one invited gets to come. And now they start to look at each other and go, then how do we get in? No one invited gets to come. So, let's start at the end. Who got invited? Those who got invited were living their lives, buying their homes, buying their properties, buying their oxen, going on their honeymoons. Is it a diatribe against wealth? Is it a diatribe against success? No, but no. Everyone who was invited was living their lives. They had other things to do. They had stuff that made life worth living. They held on to it. They did well with it. Everybody invited was a success. Who gets invited next? The ones that never have anything because they can't do anything to get it. They're the bottom end of the meritocracy pyramid. They're getting crushed and stepped on all the time. Jesus says, let's start there. Bring in people that'll never get in by themselves. Now there's openings at the table. Oh, we still have room? Okay, let's go get people who didn't even know I was throwing a party. They don't even know what the other side lives like. Bring them in here and show out. Go get everybody and anybody that you can find and bring them in. Oh, and by the way, tell the world that the only way to get into this party is to get in without the original invitation card. And here's why the original invitation card doesn't work. Jesus, from this point on, gives the cost of discipleship. That famous, unless a man hate his mother and his father and his brother and his sister and follow me, he doesn't have my life in him. That's a hard pill to swallow. Why does he throw that in here at the end of this dinner party story? Because he's heading to this verse in Luke 14, 33. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. It's not exciting. It's not motivating. It's a little scary. It's a little worrisome. It's a little infuriating. It's a lot confusing. What does Jesus mean? None of you can become my disciples unless you give up all your possessions. Remember again, I know I'm I'm slow walking you here, but I want to land in the same spot at the same time. That's why we're doing it. So I keep bringing that story back so that we can propel it just a baby step forward every time so that we're all landing in that same space. How did this whole thing start? A guy in the party lands on, oh, well, in the end, everybody that's in the kingdom is blessed. And Jesus goes, are you sure? Not so fast. You're making it sound like you're getting in. Which pin drop happens in the room and Jesus tells this crazy story and lands on unless you give up all your possessions you can't be my disciples and this is what this says to me everything that you have is the exact price that you have to pay to get into the kingdom 
Everything you have has to go to the cross. If you're poor, you take your poor and you take it to the cross. If you're rich, you take your rich and you take it to the cross. When Jesus says, unless you give up your possessions, keep it in context. Unless you give everything you have to him, how can you receive everything he gives to you? Grace is not simply that God gives you a bunch of stuff in the middle of your stuff. Grace is that you brought everything you are to him and you put it on his cross. Everything you are. And when he nailed it to his cross, he rolled the stone away in your heart and stood up inside of you and said, now everything I am, you get to be. Why are those invited not able to come to the party? Because the story lands here quite simply. We don't have to make it complex. We can live our lives, but we can't live our lives without Jesus. And when we go live our lives without bringing everything we are to Him, that's how we get excluded from the party. It has nothing to do with the size of our bank accounts or the health of our bodies because it costs everybody the exact same thing. What's it cost? Everything you are. Yeah, but I'm a lot. Oh, then you have an even bigger price. Wait, I thought it was free. No, you don't understand. Death takes everybody, right? See, we're all going. You go poor, you go rich. You go healthy, you go unhealthy. You might go faster or you go slower, but in the end, we all go. Why? Because death is this great neutralizer. It lands everywhere, on everybody, for all time, even the Son of God. We're right, right? We're in the book. Even God put on a human flesh and died so that he could show us the possibility of a resurrected life. That's why, that's why Easter explodes. Because it isn't over. Just be patient. Just be patient. It isn't over. I know it's dark, but the sun's coming up. The sun's coming up. The sun's coming up. Roll the stone away. Boom. Here comes life. New man on the earth. In Christ, we go, look, we actually can be better. We actually can live different. We actually can think different. We actually can feel different. We actually can be a different person. Not maybe, not principally. We actually can in Christ. But how do we get there? We die. You go, oh, well, naturally, we're all going to die in the natural. Oh, of course we're all going to die in the natural. But Jesus isn't inviting you to die in the natural. You're going to do that whether you get invited or not. Jesus is inviting a different kind of death. The one that Paul says, I died and my life is hid with Christ in God. Colossians. 
I died and my life is hid with Christ. What's he mean? I gave everything I am. I brought it all to Jesus. And I went, if you can use it, use it. If you want to burn it, burn it. If you want to knock it down, knock it down. If you want to build it up, build it up. But here it is. I'm not hiding anything from you. This is everything I am. This is my hopes. This is my dreams. This is my money. This is my house. This is my body. This is my mind. This is everything I have. I'm not holding anything back from you. You got it all. Wipe it out. I don't care. It's all dung to me, Paul said. He said, I count it all loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. You want to know what it costs to get in the kingdom? Every single thing you have. But that's okay. Because when you give every single thing you have, you receive every single thing He is. This is so exciting to me. It's so exciting to me because He asked us all to pay the same price. And He gives us this crazy amount of His life and grace. And you know what? The reason this is the crazy initiative of grace is God does it and He doesn't have to. Like, He invites the people to the party and they go, I'm living, I'm buying houses and lands and I'm going on honeymoons. And He could just go, uh, well... They're busy. I'll wait them out. Or it could could turn him on to really wanting the inaccessible people. Oh, man. He bought a house. Ah, You know what? I'll see if he's free next week. He's the kind of guy I want at my party, man. Because I saw his house. And it's good. It's nice. Oh, he he bought a new car. Maybe he'll give me a spin. We're going to wait. We're going to throw another party next week got to have this dude at our party oh they're on their honeymoon that's cool they get do you know where they went let me tell you where they went it's two weeks of paradise they get back we're gonna throw another party because you're gonna want them at the pool party they are something just put everything away put it in the storage put it in the freezer we're gonna throw this again in two weeks we'll get them in that could be god's way i'm being sarcastic i'm trying to stay with the story a little bit what that would sound like is that god goes i can wait out those of you that can do it you're my kind of people Come on, man. Get with it. That's a strong survive. I'm here pull, wait, waiting for you. I'm rooting you on. We're going to make it home someday. Or he could have just went the next level and went, you know what? Kind of ticks me off. They didn't want to show up, but you know what? Fine. Go get the poor and the lame and the blind because they've never been to a party, and I'm going to bless them. And go get them because they don't have the ability to throw their own party. They're blind and they're lame and they're poor. They don't have money. They can't see. They can't walk. They got to have people do it for them. I'm going to be a good charitable guy. I'm going to do it for them. Heaven's a place of charity. God helps those who can't help themselves. Legs are broken. I'm going to pick them up. Eyes are blind. I'm going to help them out. I'm going to bless you when you can't be blessed. I'm going to bless you when you can't work. I'm going to bless you when you're down. And, and we would have been okay with that. But Dad Gummit, he crosses the line when he goes to that third level. Because that third level is the crazy initiative of grace. Because the master doesn't tell his servant, go out and get everybody else left because I love them. He says, go out and get them because you can. I'm God. I get to have anybody I want. So I'm not going to the highways and the byways because I love them, although I do. I'm going because they're there. And I have a big house. And I want to fill it. And I know it's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. 
to put this much grace in the world. And this third level don't even know me. Some of them don't even care. It's okay. Go get them. Bring them in. When Matthew 22 tells this same story, Matthew tells a different version, but it's essentially the same. It gets to the end of the story and there's all these people. The Matthew version really blow your mind because the Matthew version says he tells them go out into the highways and bring in the good and the bad. Oh God, good and the bad. How do you bring the bad in to eat? (laughs) Okay, bring in the good and the bad. And he gets to the end of the night and there's a guy in the party without a wedding garment on. And the master calls him up and goes, hey, where's your wedding garment? And he's, I don't have a wedding garment. And the master kicks him out of the party. Where he goes, where the worm dieth not, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You go, oh, wait, wait a minute, what happened? Matthew's version gives us the one detail that Luke's version leaves out that we need if we really want to land somewhere on it is this. Contextually, let's go back first century. When that woman gave herself to that man in marriage, she gave him every single thing she was. Every dime, every dollar, every hope, every dream, and even let him swallow up her last name. She took his name. She took his identity. She became who he is. What happened when the woman came into marriage with the man is that she came underneath whatever he is and she brought whatever she was into it. You get to the end of the party and the master walks around and sees someone without a wedding robe on and they get kicked out. Why? Because it's the one person that tried to get in without paying the price. And what's the price? Everything you got. If you're going to come in, you come in as mine, he says. I got you. I take care of you, but you got to give me everything. You don't get to cheat and play on the side. It's me and you. It's not me, you, and somebody else. It's us. It's all of you gets all of me together in the kingdom. I love this story in a way that I've never loved it before. Not in that it's helping me figure out how it all ends, because quite frankly, this story is not about how it all ends. If I get stuck on how it all ends, I'm going to miss that I'm supposed to be doing something for the poor, the widow, and the stranger, and the blind. (laughs) And that's my job. Did you know there's over 2,000 references to helping the poor, the widow, the blind, the stranger, and the sojourner in the Bible? Over 2,000. You know how many times the word gospel is used? A hundred. Why is it 20 times more important to God to tell us to take care of the people that can't take care of themselves than it is for us to preach the gospel. Maybe it's because preaching the gospel is taking care of the poor and the widow and the stranger and the blind and the sojourner. The gospel's more than, hey, don't you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? No, the gospel is good news. A king came for you in the middle of your poor, blind, wretched, miserable and naked selves oh you want to come in what's the cost what you got you go you go all i got's me and he goes welcome home everybody pays the same price yeah but he's got more don't worry about him all i want out of him is everything he is 
All I want out of you is everything you want. And I'm going to bless you with everything daddy has. What's it cost? What do you got? I love that thought. Not what's it cost. It varies, but even in the law, it varied based on where you were. You know, some, if you were wealthy, you sacrificed a bull. If you were a little rich, not quite as rich, you sacrificed a goat, then a lamb, then a pigeon, then a couple of turtle doves. But when you get to the cross, he goes, hey, you're all going to die anyway. So bring me what you got. You can put it in my death, and I'll give you what I got, and, you know, and we can put it in my resurrection. And together, we go to Dad's banquet. And all I ask is that you put on the wedding robe. Because the wedding robe shows that you and I belong to each other. This is the gospel. And it is good news. I'm glad that I cannot tell you who all gets into the party, but I do know that who gets into the party gave everything they had. I don't mean they gave all their effort. I mean they gave all of themselves. It's not read more, pray more, give more, fast more. Mm -mm -mm. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. It's here I am. That's all I got. But see, if I give you all I got, that's not, we, all, we think that's the good stuff. No, that's everything I've got. That's everything I've got. My guilt, my shame, my sin, my pain, my problems, my secrets, my darkness, my doubts, my fears, my hatred. I give it to you. You get it. And that means you and I are going to go on the mat once in a while. Because I don't give that stuff up easily. I don't give my abuse, my molestation, my pain. I don't give that easily. So you and I are going to duke it out, God. And he goes, that's all right. Welcome to the party. You want in? Put this robe on. This robe means you and I, intimate. And in our intimacy, we'll wrestle. And that's okay. Look around, son, daughter. Look at the people in this party. Some of them you wouldn't talk to in your... You wouldn't talk to if you ran into them at Walmart. But they're in here. And you know why? Because they gave me all they had. And you're giving me all you have. And that's it. So who am I? I'm going to tell you. I can't tell you where you are with the Lord. This is you and Him. He's throwing a party for you. And He's standing there with the wedding robe wide open going, slip your arms into this, baby. Come home. Come home. He loves you. He has a crazy initiative of grace that just doesn't make sense. But he does it because he loves us. I do not think we have scratched the surface of this brilliant little story that Jesus gave. But we've done our part to at least scratch an itch. When you scratch an itch, it doesn't mean it goes away. Sometimes it gets worse. That's actually what I'm hoping for you. So that you leave and go, I want to know a little more about that. And you go, I'm going to spend some time right there. And go, mm, good. Maybe then we start to see something about Jesus we didn't know existed before. And that's great. And that's a good wrestle. The crazy initiative of grace is good news. Good news. In Christ, you died. And your life is hid with Christ in God. Hid with Christ in God. You and Christ hid together in God. Pastor, what's that look like? I don't know, but I think it sounds awfully cool. 
I don't. I have no idea what that means. I, I, have, I have ideas, but I don't know if they're right. They're not even worth me telling you. I just know this. Anything that says, I'm hid with Christ in God, that's where I want to be. And that's where we are in Him. Let's pray. And when we pray, just maybe say yes, Lord, to this word. If you, if you believed it, if you agreed with it, if it said something to you. What's he asked for? What do you got? That's all he asked for. Father, what do you ask for from Paul White? Whatever I got. All that I got. It's not going to be what somebody else has, and it's going to be more than someone else has, but it's not measured in quantity or money or effort or stuff. It's measured in me. It's just who I am, and I bring it to you. Unless a man give up his possessions, he didn't have a place in the kingdom. doesn't mean unless a man goes and sells all of his money and lives on the street. That wouldn't make any sense even in the context of this story. What it does mean is that unless a man brings what he is to you, he doesn't know what you are. So I bring what I am to you so that I can know what you are. And I don't hold anything back. And if I am, Father, help me. Because I do keep my grubby fingers on some stuff once in a while. And I don't want to let go. I want to let go because I know that in letting go, I get to see something in you that was impossible for me to see if I was looking at that new house or those five oxen or going on that honeymoon. And there's nothing wrong with any of it. But I know that if living takes the place of dying in you, then I'm living without you. May this be real in life for someone else that watches tonight. Someone in this room and someone who finds it someday online. May it help them as well to understand the crazy initiative of grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I'm trying to, I was trying to land where you are there, and I, I think I see where you are. Um, I, like your, I like your thinking, and, and I'll tell you where, what I, where I land on that. It doesn't mean it's the landing spot, but it's where I land on that. Is I don't think that Jesus is giving the preference of the kingdom sequentially. I wish I had this group. Oh, I couldn't get them. I'll take them. Oh, I couldn't get them. I'll take them. He's working against their ideas of who qualifies in the kingdom. And so he starts with who they think qualifies and shows them that those they think qualify will often choose something else. Those they don't think qualified will come in and those no one thinks qualified will also get to come in. I don't think it's, I'd take you, didn't get you, now I'll take you, don't get you, now I'll take you. I don't think it's Jesus trying to show us heaven's choice. It's Jesus trying to show us what the kingdom looks like compared to what we think it looks like. Because he's, he's looking around at a party and everyone's like, yeah, I got our man, look, Jesus is here. And he goes, wouldn't this party be better if there was some blind and lame and poor? And everybody goes quiet. And he goes, well, and he says, because, you know, that's what the kingdom's going to look like at the resurrection. And then that dude gets clever and goes, yeah, at the resurrection, we all are blessed. And Jesus, I think he kind of goes, 
Oh, gosh. <laughs> I do. I, I think it kind of goes, oh, look, they didn't get it at all. Okay, let me tell you a story you're going to hate. There once upon a time was a guy. And, that, and, I, and so I don't think that Jesus goes into the room to show them heaven's love order. He goes into the room, sees their preference, and then works against it. Yes. Yeah, and then says, okay, you think this room looks like the kingdom because I'm in it. Okay, let's, let's try this again. You think this looks like the kingdom because I'm here and you think I'm the king. He goes, where's the poor? Where's the blind? Where's the lame? Because if this were the kingdom, wouldn't they be here? Right? Now we're getting there. And they go, oh, yeah, well, we're all blessed to be here. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. Quit acting like you are the poor and the blind and the lame and the stranger because you're not and you know better. So let me tell you a story. And so, and, and by the time you get to the end of the story, the room's dead as a pin drop. Pin, you hear a pin drop and the room's dead because they just figured out who the people are that aren't at the party and it's everybody that's at the party. And, and that's not fun. Nobody likes to end on that kind of sermon. Sounds to me like he wants a party that's full of chaos. He does. Because that's the crazy initiative of grace. Amen. A party full of chaos and people who we don't think should be at the party. That's, that's the end of the story. And then he goes, how do we get in? What do you got? What do you got? Well, whatever you got, that's what gets you in. Mm -hmm. And that's, to me, precisely why Jesus drops that bomb on the rich young ruler who goes, mm, I've done all that stuff. And he goes, okay, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come, or give it to the poor and come follow me. Because I can't do that. Is it a diatribe against wealth? Oh, well, you can make a pretty good master's thesis that Jesus has a problem with you hoarding money. I didn't, you can make a pretty good thesis that there's a problem with piling it up, piling it up, piling it up. I'm going to leave that alone because that's not Jesus' fight there either. Because that's not what he was asked. He was asked about eternal life. And what Jesus says is, okay, you want to know what it cost you? Everything you got. Isn't that what it costs to get into the party? Yep, everything you got. In his case, it was personified by actual money. And it was the money that was his God that held him back from God. And so Jesus goes, man, you're going to have to get rid of the one thing you don't want to get rid of. I mean, you're, you're bragging about you didn't do this and you didn't. And we do that. We go, I didn't commit adultery. I didn't murder anybody. And we pick all the stuff that we pick the stuff we didn't do that wasn't even that hard to not do. Some people don't commit murder because they didn't get mad enough. Some people don't commit adultery because they didn't have opportunity. It's not because they're faithful. It's because they weren't ever in the spot that would have gave them the most trouble. So before you brag, that's my point, is when you bring that stuff to Jesus and brag about it and go, oh, look what I did, look what I didn't do. He's going to find the price you didn't pull out and pay. And so he goes, mm, okay, what about this? Goes, oh, well, um. And then rich, rich young ruler fades into oblivion in the Bible, just sort of backs his way out of the conversation. He was cocky when it started. Did that and 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 that, and that. So what's it cost to get in? How much you got? That'll do. Come on in.